0: Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. Today, we are talking about aging and families. Uh, We've talked about a little bit more about it on the show before in terms of Uh, the structural dynamic that changes when it comes to aging families, when it comes to family dynamics, especially. We're talking a little bit more about it in terms of the ageism that sort of takes place and the stereotypes that take place within it. Uh, To join me on the show is Dr. Stacey Gordon. She is the Program Director of Next Phase Adult Caregiving and Retirement for Work Life Office of the Provost at New York University. She focuses on three related areas, caregiving, aging, and retirement. Thank you so much for joining me on the show, Stacey. Thanks for
1: having me on the show, Dean.
0: Now, we know that you talk about ageism and an anti-ageist approach to it. Um, how did you sort of get into studying this and to talking about it? I started to work with families
1: and their older loved ones many years ago, and Gradually, I realized that there was a a different set of expectations for aging that the families had for their loved ones and that the older people actually had for themselves. And this created somewhat of a sort of personal um, crisis for me because the work that I was doing was supposed to be representing both the family and the older person. And I decided to take a break from that work after many years um, in uh, care management and went back to school to study gerontology and particularly to focus on something that I had been reading about and learning more about, which was ageism. And I had a hunch, which was that ageism, which I knew was sort of prevalent in society in healthcare, in the workplace, and in interpersonal relationships, but I didn't really know that I could call what I was seeing in the family ageism. So I started to work with um, with this sort of hunch and figure out whether actually this, what I was seeing, the, the very complicated dynamics that I was seeing in the family could actually be um, called at uh, called ageism, right? So, what I did was a lot of research on what the definition of ageism is, and then I started to think about the the uh, situations that I was working with or that I had worked with in my practice, and it took a lot of actually convincing. Um, of not only myself, but my doctoral program advisor, that actually this was something that was worth studying. So we decided to actually come up with a definition of ageism. Well, so ageism is actually the stereotyping and discrimination based on those stereotypes of people due to their age. Uh, The term ageism was coined by someone named Robert Butler in 1969. And um, it's been sort of um, developed over time. Um, And so what we're now um, thinking about ageism, we're now thinking about ageism as sort of um, containing three different components, right? Our thoughts, our feelings, and how we behave based on those thoughts and feelings. And when those thoughts and feelings are negative, that is when... Ageism in it in the neck has negative behavioral um expressions. When we think about actually old people as sort of loving and warm and fuzzy, that actually also can be ageism because what we do is we behave in a way that promotes um sort of uh uh almost um sort of uh belittling of the person. So for example, if we say if we see an older couple on the street and we call them cute, that's actually an example of positive ageism. Because really what we mean is that there's something warm and fuzzy about them, there's something that's nice about them, but we use the term cute which is actually a bit belittling and infantilizing. Another really good example of Positive ageism is when we see an older person at a corner, a street corner, and maybe they have a walker um, that they're using. And so we say, in a very kind way, can I help you cross the street? And so what that does, and that's a very kind thing, right? It's a very kind expression of caring and concern. But we know actually that what that does is actually that signals to the older person that we think that there's a problem with them crossing the street. And they then internalize that there's a problem. Ageism refers to the negative stereotyping of people because of their age. It usually consists of thoughts and feelings that people have about older people or even about younger people and the behaviors that are associated with that sort of the negative behaviors and stereotyping and discrimination of people based on their age.
0: Okay. It's really interesting concept to me because the whole idea of ageism is sort of like you want them to feel independent, but you also want to be there to help them. So that's the very interesting sort of, when I was learning a little bit more about it, I had Google open and schooling every single term that I, possibly came on as to what a definition was and it was so interesting because the whole idea of what ageism is and the whole the approach that you take to it is you want them to be to feel like they can do things themselves but at the same time there's also that idea of realistically some of them aren't able to so i think when it comes to the idea of caregiving as well like you want your grand, like I would love my grandparents to feel like they can do everything, but in reality, knowing that they can't do everything is sort of the only thing that really sets them back and holds them back from doing everyday things.
1: So um, I think that one thing, one sort of misconception about older people is that the older you get. The more experienced you are at life, and oftentimes people think that there's a lot that older people cannot do. There are there are you know things that happen to your body as you grow older, which may um, which may affect you know your ability to read. Like eyes generally, you know, give out like at a certain point. You know, in terms of like you need reading glasses, so that's an assistive device that actually can help the eyes hearing actually worsens as you get older. So you might need a hearing aid. Some people um, may have problems walking, so they might need an assistive device like a walker. But generally, there's really no, um, there's no model for what people can do as they grow older. And I think that ageism actually, um, sort of negative stereotypes about age, leads us to believe that as people grow older, they're sort of all the same and they can't do things because they're old. And actually the opposite is true. We know that older people, actually as people get older, they age in so many different ways. Whereas we know like as children get older, there are certain sets of skills that they learn, right? They learn to talk, they learn to feed themselves, they learn to toilet themselves, they learn to read, they learn to run and jump and and so on. But, and so that's sort of a, a set path that most younger people take, typically. But for older people, their development, because older people continue to develop, right? People develop their entire lives. Different skills, different abilities, and so on. And older people, because they, are, they have had life experience, for example, um, they've lived in, um, they've lived, they've gone to school, they've had work, they've had families, all of those different experiences help to sort of shape the way that people grow old. So when someone is living in an area, let's say, that um, has a great deal of pollution, we know that that will affect their health. Mm-hmm. So people who are exposed to that sort of pollution will not live as long as someone who lives in a healthier environment. Mm-hmm. That's called a social determinant of health. and. They social determinants of health actually affect how people grow older.
0: So, with the amount of um, understanding that you have on this and the amount of research that you've done upon sort of the anti ageism approach, I think you've done, I think you mentioned that you've done a few foundations and you've sort of built upon that a whole lot more in order to widen the community in terms of their understanding of ageism and the whole stereotype among caregiving. Um, What's been one thing, what's been one of the highlights that you've been able to work with?
1: Well, so I have created um, an initiative called the Wrinkle Project, which is based on my, uh, my work with older adults and their families. What I was seeing over and over again was older people um, sort of being told what to do by their family members, rather than older people making decisions and being supported in those decisions by their family members. So um, actually, after working for a long time with families, I decided to actually take a break and look at what I was seeing, you know, sort of examine more deeply what I was seeing. And ageism kept on coming up, right? So, and I had this, um, I had this hunch that actually creating a place where people could learn more about themselves and their own negative um, internalized thoughts and feelings about age might be really helpful. So the in the Wrinkle Project, I actually have um, one sort of cornerstone event, which is called the Wrinkle Salon. And in the Wrinkle Salon, people get together for a series of meetings, and we talk about what it looks like, what it feels like, what the problems are with growing older. And I have not only old people in the wrinkle salon, but I have young people in the wrinkle salon. So it's an intergenerational conversation. So we have younger people asking older people what they think about certain parts of aging and young, and older people asking younger people what their impressions are of their own sort of set of difficulties in growing older in the sort of time that we're in. Um, and so we also look at... Um, the consequences of ageism, right? So what happens to people when they're exposed to ageism? And there's a lot of research on the negative consequences of ageism. Um, For example, um, people who are exposed to negative stereotypes of age actually have a slower walking speed they have greater cardiovascular illness and stress. They have poorer handwriting. They actually, when they have, um, when they actually have a cognitive impairment, it gets worse when they are exposed to negative consequences, to, to negative stereotypes of age. So we also know, and this research, a lot of the research, the initial research around the negative consequences of ageism comes from a lab that um, Professor Becca Levy created at Yale University. Um, And she found over and over and over again that the, the exposure to negative stereotypes actually created negative consequences in many, in all of these different areas that I said. Um, but the thing that she also found was that when people are exposed to positive stereotypes of age, in other words, aging is a time of wisdom, aging is a time of possibility, ageism is a time of greater um, adventure and so on, then those negative effects of ageism actually go away. Right. So what she what she found was that when people are exposed to positive impressions of age, we live seven and a half years longer.
0: Wow. I that is, that is amazing kind of research in terms of the dig into into the importance of understanding it and the importance of understanding what ageism is. I mean, if I'm learning it today, hopefully I add another seven years to my, to my life. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> well, also, so we go through this in the Wrinkle Salon. So mm-hmm. we look at, you know, we sort of like examine age and what it means to us. We look at ageism, we learn about ageism, and then we learn about the negative consequences of ageism. And then we actually take some personal action, right? I have people go out and actually think about how they can change the way that they view aging and also try to influence other people. Because we know that, you know, we're living in families and communities and it's really important not just for individuals to change the way they see aging and to um, to sort of deconstruct ageism. It's important for everyone. And because everyone at any age can benefit from an anti-ageist approach.
0: Wow, that is that is a very. I mean, the research in that is phenomenal in terms of the way that the importance of the approach itself is is entirely new to me. I never knew even knew that ageism was a thing that we were dealing with today, um, especially in terms of caregiving. I, I talk about caregiving quite a lot on the show in different areas and different views on it, but never really spoken about the whole idea of us being ageist in terms of what a older generation can do and can't do and how much we limit their opportunities as well. So this is an entirely new concept and I am so excited to even dig even deeper to the viewpoint that you hold and that you're promoting um, in both your work and the Wrinkle Project that takes place. So, before we sort of get started, we love to start with a little icebreaker, sort of get to know you a little bit more before we get to know how important the subject is.
1: Okay.
0: So, it's called Get to Know You, and we love to start off. Just say the first thing that sort of comes to your mind when you hear these keywords. So the first one is a favorite book of yours. So the book that I'm currently
1: obsessed with is Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. And um I I am I think a lot about how um about the influence of AI in our lives and how the central theme of the book is that actually human relationships can't be replaced by
0: AI. Well, I think that I'm just looking at it now and I think it's, I mean, it's a Nobel prize winning writer as well. So that's a, that's, that holds it in high praise already. So I will go and search that up straight after the show. Right. Um, how about your favorite movie? Um,
1: my favorite movie is My Life as a Dog. Have you ever seen it?
0: Yes. Yes, I have uh, seen that. <laughs>
1: okay. It's, yes. Um, by Lasse Hallstrom. Um, It's also, it's just this beautiful coming of age story about a boy who's, you know, learning to live with multiple losses um, and also just growing up, um, growing up in a complicated time. Um, So it's, and it's again about family. So it's a central theme for me.
0: Yes, I think when it comes to family, it hits a little bit harder than any other type of movie that comes about.
1: Yes, I agree. I agree.
0: How about a favorite podcast that you've
1: discovered? Okay, so my favorite podcast, I'd say that I listen to when I'm cooking. Um, One is actually This American Life by Ira Glass. And it's basically about um, human interest stories. It's funny. It's moving. It's super interesting. Um, And the other one is The Moth. Um, which is basically a podcast about a podcast of storytelling, and I have done storytelling on stage. Um, and I ha- am in awe of people actually who make it to the finals in the Moss. Um, it's sort of a competition. Um, and there are final, like the final Moss podcast is played in various theaters in around, around the U S but a lot of it happens in New York. So it's one of my favorite things to do and also to listen to um, online.
0: Wow. that It's very range, very different ranges of interests that you hold personally and hobbies that you have as well. So that's um, it's always nice when you hear a little bit more about the guest's personal life and sort of just understanding as to how they go about the, their day-to-day things. Because it's always fascinating to me what other people listen to. So I'm, that's why, probably why my obsession is watching Gogglebox over and over again, just seeing what other people are watching. Right. <laughs>
1: that's, great. that's great. It sounds,
0: it sounds very stalkerish, but I, I promise you it is not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I believe you. <laughs> so the next one um, is a famous role model that you admire. Oh, that's so easy. Um, Michelle Obama.
1: Okay. Um, I adore her. I I feel like um, pretty much I admire everything about her. Um, And the fun fact is that I have met her several times. Our children went to the same school in Chicago when they lived in Chicago. Hmm. um, And I lived in Chicago. And so um, I met both Michelle and Barack several times. And... I, you know, I I actually really loved Michelle Obama's podcast as well, but meeting her was just like one of my life highlights. Um, and, uh, I was able to, um, to chat with her a bit. And, um, I just, I think that, um, she has done such a beautiful job, um, as, you know, a first lady and, um, the way that she lives her life is just she's a role model for everyone um and so that's she's my one of my sort of living idols i should
0: say yeah it's it's amazing to see her life after after being on the white house and after doing that just the amount of things that she's done and Mm -hmm. just seeing how normal she is as well like she's not taking fame as huge sort of career highlight of hers. And it's, she's just living a simple life. I mean, her kids still went to the same public schools. They still went to college and just seeing how they, how the whole family as well just sort of lived normally, even though their father and their husband was president of the United States, it was still, it was still a family life. It was still what you expect a family life to be.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I once walked into um, the library of our children's school. Um, Mm -hmm. This is after Obama was elected. And um, I saw um, Baraka and Michelle with the second graders um, because Sasha was in second grade um, and they had, um, he was the guest reader that Mm -hmm. day. And so Barack and Michelle were sitting with Sasha on their lap and all these second graders in front of them. And he was reading The Grinch Who Stole Christmas and um, making jokes. And it was like they are such normal humans and have just so many gifts that they give sort of just in who they are and in their, you know, compassion for the world, really. So, yeah, I agree that Michelle continues to
0: give and uh, as does Barack so yeah I think they they come on as a show as a huge role model for a lot of the guests that come on so it's it's really yeah. nice to see the, how people are seeing them in such a good light in such a good way so today we're talking about family and we're talking about the dynamics in family and how that changes um first off I know that everyone has their own definition of what family is. So what would be your own personal definition as to what a family would be described as?
1: Great question. Um, you know, I, I think that a family is a set of people who love each other. Um, you know, there might be, um, just two people, just a couple, there might be one parent and a child, there might be two parents and a child, um, or there might be just a set of friends who become family. So um, I think there's a very wide definition of family. Generally, the families that I have worked with um, have at least one um, older person and and an adult child. Mm
0: And do you think the whole concept of family is just as important as it used to be, say, decades back?
1: I do. I do. I think that family is where we really sort of get our primary sustenance. We learn how to be in the world. Um, We learn how to love people. We learn how to to love ourselves. Um, So, yeah, I think that family is, you know, sort of the primary building block of development of child development and actually as of development sort of throughout the life course. And it could be that someone's family doesn't work out for them and they find a chosen family. And so I think that, you know, we really need to expand the definition of family to include, include chosen family, which is friends and, and other people.
0: Mm -hmm. And When talking about aging families, and we know we've gone through the definition as to what it is a little earlier, what makes a family considered to be an aging family? Well,
1: every family is aging, right? Every Hmm. day we wake up one day older, and aging is our human prerogative. Um, And so I think that Let's just put that out there, right? So everyone's aging. An aging family is a family that is, you know, sort of in the world, right? and and moving along in their life course. When we talk about older people, um we sort of expand um, we we sort of expand upon the aging family, right? A family that has an older person whatever is considered older, you know, it could be, um, you know, it could be a family with two teenagers and the mother and the father, um, experience their teenagers as, you know, sort of grown up has, as having grown up and they look at them as older children. Right. Generally in my work, I look at, at, um, families that have, that have, um, as I said before, an older person may be older than, let's say, 70, 75, um, and someone who is part of that person's life, one person or many people that are part of that person's life in some way. Mm -hmm.
0: And when talking about the family dynamics, and I know you said that The dynamics change a lot when it comes to raising teenagers versus raising adults or um, adult children raising elderly parents. How do these changes impact the relationship between each of the family members?
1: So family dynamics are changing all the time as families move through different stages. When people become a couple, then get married or have a child, or decide to become parents on their own, the family life continues to change with each new stage. And one huge driver of change in family dynamics now is population aging. Families are now in the midst of population aging, um, which will result in 10,000, or result has resulted already in 10,000 people turning 65 every single day of the year. That started in around... Um, 2012 and will continue until 2030 when one in five people in the U.S. will be over 65. And soon after, there will be more people over 65 than there are people under age 18. So this is a new stage for everyone, not just for families. And people in families and as a society are finding or will find ways to adjust to this. And family dynamics change as the needs of all family members change over time, and so if you think about how family dynamics will change with more older people as part of the family, that's really a significant um, change. And um, I, you know, I think that um, we are not prepared for that population aging, um, certainly in the U.S we really don't have um, a long-term care system that can support people um, as they grow older in their home. And um, the the idea that there will be more older people than younger people means that there will be a heavier burden of care on younger family members. And we actually know that at this point in the US, um, we're actually um, experiencing somewhat of a caregiving crisis. Um, Around 42 million people in the U.S. are caring for an aging friend or family member. And this number um, of people doing caregiving, unpaid caregiving, has grown more than tenfold since 1989. And the fastest growth is happening among younger people, younger generations. So the share of caregivers who are under 45 actually quintupled over the past two decades to nearly 66% of all caregivers from 16% of all caregivers as their parents, the many of the baby boomers, that 72 million baby boomers are living longer and also living with, some of them living with chronic conditions, diseases and some disability, then, uh, then their loved ones can actually help them in caring for them at home. And so one of the things that I do in my work is advocate for a long-term care system for all to advocate. I advocate for supports for caregivers, both in the home, um, And in the community. So home and community-based supports are really necessary. Um, And, you know, so we know that there's a caregiver crisis. We don't have enough caregivers. We need more, we need more paid caregivers. We need paid caregivers that people in the community can afford. Um, and that's, that really goes back to the need for a long-term care system in the U.S. that we really don't have. Um, and it's all, it's at, it's, it will become a crisis if it's not already. I actually happen to think that it already is a crisis in the U.S. Um, so the, co- the conflict in families happens over time, right? So um, as parents grow older and may want a different type of support, Um, The expectations for support need to be sort of in line with what the younger family members can provide. And the problem really is, and this is sort of the source of the root of a lot of the ageism in the family, that families don't really talk about what needs to happen as their older loved ones grow older. So the conflict comes up when, for example, um, there was just an article in the New York Times about this um, a woman named Randy who was uh, is around 30 years old. She actually was about to start her own business, a catering business. She took out a took out actually her savings, and a few months after she you know made this decision, her father who is 61 was in a terrible car accident. And so instead of, care, instead of going into her catering business, she ended up sort of pivoting and becoming a caregiver for her father. She also has two teenage children and, um, and is really struggling. And the article really sort of chronicles her struggle and points to the, the caregiving crisis, that there really aren't enough resources for Randy to count on um, and to to get support for her father. Um, so the so when there are sort of when there's a lack of conversation about people's need for care, about older people's needs need for care, then there is a crisis when the care need arises. So, in my work, one of the things that I do is I help people create a plan of care for both the the short term, right? So what happens, for example, like Randy's father, what happens if tomorrow someone has some sort of, you know, health shock, right? They're diagnosed with some terrible disease and they need care. So in my plan of care, I'd say, okay, who will be the person to take up that caregiving? And than in the short term. And then what funds do we have to rely upon to continue that caregiving? And then what is the long-term plan for that person? And so and so people make this short-term plan and then a longer-term plan. Um, and part of that could be relying on um, the Medicaid system, which is if people don't have enough money, which most people do not have enough money to fund care over time, then they can apply at some point um, for um, Medicaid. Some Some people can depend it's depending on sort of a, an income limit and resource limit. Um, so if people can include Medicaid in their care plan, great. If they can't, then they're sort of in this um, nether world where um, most of the middle class in the. US. falls into, where people have too much money to afford, Medicaid and not enough money to pay for care, um, and so what happens is that there's conflict in families around the type of care that that is needed when a crisis like a healthcare a healthcare shock happens and there is no plan. So oftentimes, and I write about this in a paper that I wrote called "Ageism and Age Discrimination in the Family." Um, I write about a situation that really illustrates um, how ageism comes into play in this situation. So um, there's a family They are the Franco family. That's actually a fictionized, fictionalized case example that I created. So the Franco family consists of um, an older um, father who is, I think, about 87 and two adult children who are in their 40s. Mr. Franco falls and, um, and has to go to the hospital. He's checked out by the doctors in the ER. He comes home and his adult children meet him at the home. And they say, dad, we've looked into assisted living. It's time for you to leave your apartment and go to assisted living. And Mr. Franco sort of freaks out. He says, why? I'm fine, I fell. People fall and we deal with the consequences. Actually, Mr. Franco was living in a building with a lot of support. He had a lot of neighbors who were really concerned about him, who who would look out for him. And actually it was the neighbors who picked him up and called an ambulance when he fell just because they wanted to make sure that he got the medical care that he needed. But the adult children, his adult children, Mr. Franco's children actually had already, between the fall and the hospitalization, and by the time he got home, they had actually put a down payment on a room or an apartment in an assisted living facility. Mm -hmm. And so why did that happen? It happened because of structural ageism. So I talk a lot about ageism in the family, right? And ageism in the family, is a result of structural ageism. We have all of these people who are growing older and not enough support to care for them. And so we, and then we also have the um, sort of, um what I call the aging industrial complex. Actually, I didn't coin that term. Um, That's the term that uh, Maggie Coons and Carol Estes coined many decades ago. So the Mm -hmm. aging industrial complex sort of comes in and says, oh, we can solve your problem. Because there's no sort of macro level set of laws and policies that will care for Mr. Franco, let's say in his home, the aging industrial complex swoops in and says, oh, here's an assisted living apartment. You can pay us for that and we will take care of your father. Mm -hmm. So that is the the meso level of ageism, right? The fact is that we don't have, we don't have a middle level system of care in the community for people like Mr. Franco to be cared for if he needs. Actually, it turned out that Mr. Vago didn't need the care in the community, um, and his children really backed off after they figured that out. With his, actually, when they all went to his therapy, to his therapist to sort of have a session and figure out that they really didn't need to swoop in and take care of him, that he was really okay, that it was actually healthier for him to stay in his apartment with his. Community of neighbors and friends, um, and people who were supporting him in whatever ways he needed. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I the 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 micro level system. Um, the micro level ageism comes in with how we sort of react to our parents' falls. Right. Yeah. So differences in expectations when something happens in the family, like a crisis, like a fall um, that Mr. Franco experienced.
0: Yeah, I think that's really, it's really hard concept for me to grasp because I, I mean, I can see my dad getting older every day. I mean, every child sees their parent getting older and faces that, um, faces that thought of, okay, if I'm not there, what's going to happen? Especially if like, for me, I've taken on the role as not a caregiver, but kind of in a step of it's my responsibility to make sure that they're eating. I mean, my dad is still working, but he has a tendency to focus so much on work that he doesn't eat or he doesn't really take care of himself. So it slowly became my role as I got older to make sure that the dinner is there, that food is there, to make sure that there is to go grocery shopping when he forgets to um, when there is something that he usually likes to eat that's not available, and so I, it's become my sister and I have taken on like swap responsibilities as to slowly taking on that role as kind of a parent. Um, I mean, I'm in my mid twenties, and my dad is still in his fifties, so it's still it's still in the early stages. But I, especially um, once he starts living on his own, that whole idea of him taking care of himself is so different is such a scary thought. So when in terms of Mr. Franco as well, in terms of the assisted living that they set their father to, I could see the child, the children's um, good intentions with that. But Absolutely. I can see myself completely doing that the minute that my dad falls down off something or has an accident. I mean, my dad is clumsy, he will stub his toe on the slightest of furniture and not even realize that his toe is bleeding. So there is so many things that I sort of think about as I get older and especially the whole idea of me sort of moving out and going out into the world on my own, knowing that he will be left to take care of himself. I know he can do it, but that whole idea of, oh, what if he's just not able to always comes to mind as well. So this whole idea of the aging family and the relationship we're talking, I think we spoke a little bit more a little earlier about the change in the change in roles and responsibilities when it comes to a parent and a child. And I think you mentioned that a parent pretty much stays a parent all throughout and shouldn't really change a child into turning into the parent. How do you sort of stop that from from happening in terms of the expectations that sort of comes about? Right. That's a great question. And I, I empathize
1: with your situation, but I want to tell you something. Your father has been taking care of himself his entire life, right? So if he's not eating, then he'll find food. If he's working, there's definitely... Food in the workplace. And I know that your worry is very well intentioned, but swooping in to help someone when they're older than you actually is a form of what we call positive ageism. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard, it's it's a hard sort of idea to um to really grasp because Um, You know, we want our family members to be, you know, to be as independent as possible. Um, And sometimes when we put more supports in, in a positive way, we're actually signaling to people that they can't feed themselves any longer, like your father, that he can't do certain things. And let me tell you, 50 is pretty young for uh, ageism to set in. So what I would suggest you do, Dina, is you and your sister and your father sit down and talk about your expectations, right? What is it that you do together as a family? And it could just be that you and your sister like to cook and like to, you know, share your food with him. Or you like to go shopping and you think about him. There's a difference between thinking about him as sort of an a, a person Who's needy because he's older, and a person who can actually, um, who can actually do these things for himself, and will hopefully live with, uh, another fifty years. Right? People are living longer and healthier lives. I would say your goal, as uh, you know, as someone in their mid twenties, is to really figure out um, how to. Talk with your father about him um, creating healthy behaviors that enable him to live a long longer and healthier life. So you know, you can have a conversation with him about feeding himself well, about exercising often. We know that actually exercise is hugely important in terms of like preventing illness in the short term and long term. Um, you can talk to him about learning new skills, about continuing to work, about finding other stimulation um, outside of just his work and his family finding you know hobbies and um, and other ways to you know sort of involve himself and friends in particular. actually we know that friends and connection with people, probably one of the most important pieces of successful aging, of growing older well, of living a, a longer and healthier life. Um, so there was um, the health and retirement study. Oh, actually, you know what? I don't want to go into that study. So so let's just scratch that. Okay. So um, friends are super important. Connections with people um, and positive connections with people are probably the, the piece of aging, of growing older, that's most significant. So, and the quality of our relationships, super important. So, so- I would ask you to talk to your dad about that. Mm-hmm.
0: So in terms of creating, allowing both the older generation to feel like they can, Um, to feel independent and to feel that they can sort of go about their life. What way can families sort of work together to create a positive and supportive environment for that to, for both sides to both feel like they have a chance at growing older, at sort of getting older and going through their life independently, regardless of the age or the role within the family? You know, as I said before, I think
1: I think really the most important thing is to talk, right? Is to have conversations about what it is that family members want and need, and really to try to project into the future. You know, I have this co- ongoing conversation with my own father about at what point it will be, he will be at when we can say, okay, I think it's time to bring in a caregiver because you can't do A, B, or C. And we sort of have that as, you know, a constant conversation. You know, what, what are those three things that you might not be able to do? Um, And those conversations, sort of the, in the meantime, conversations, what happens, um, what happens, what are the expectations, what would you, What would the older family member like to see in their future? Those are the kinds of conversations that will guide how the family functions. So when expectations between the older and the younger generation differ, Mm -hmm. that's where the conflict comes in. So if you and your father, let's say, and your sister can get on the same page about what it is that your father wants as he grows older, what sort of supports, when he would like those supports and what you and your sister can do to provide the support. That conversation will enable your family to grow older well, right? Mm -hmm. And also eliminate sort of the negative associations with age, right? Because people do have needs. Everyone has needs. People have needs in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s. Forget the children, right? 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s. In every decade, people actually have needs and they need to figure out how to meet their needs. So looking at a person who is older than you and asking them what their needs are is probably the one, um, the most important ingredient to, to sort of, you to, uh, of the most important ingredient of an anti-ageist approach. Mm -hmm.
0: And so what are some of the challenges that can come about in terms of having that conversation and also allowing both sides to feel independent amongst the family?
1: So the challenges are that people don't want to have the conversation. Generally, um, People say they don't have time. It's too complicated, um, and generally they avoid the conversation out of fear that something bad will happen if they do have the conversation. Um, and so you know they avoid that, and they and then something happens, and they don't know what their older person, their older loved one wants. That is a huge challenge. Um, another challenge is that. Um, family members can have different ideas of what to do um, with the older family member. For example, if the family member has um, a cognitive impairment, right? If there's a family member with dementia and the family member didn't say before the illness set in what it is that they wanted, Uh, You know, one sibling or one adult child can want one thing for their parent, and the other one can want something totally different. This is, you know, happens super. You know, it happens often, and it's super complicated. Um, And you know, generally in my practice, the in my care management practice, I saw a lot of families who were in this situation. I used all of my best sort of conflict resolution skills to figure out what worked the best for, you know, what really would work the best for the older person and to center the older person in the conversation rather than centering sort of the the desire of one or one or the other adult child. But really what is the best situation for the older person? And sometimes really family members just, you know, sort of stay in this conflicted state for such a long time that the older person really never gets the attention that they need. So really, uh, you know, I can't stress enough the need to talk about care um, and the to-, to talk about the future um, soon, um, sooner rather than later, when you're young, like your age and your father is relatively young. Um, and, you know, and that one conversation, will set off sort of a cascade of other conversations. So it's just sort of a matter of diving in to the first conversation and then usually there's sort of um a snowball effect where people open up the topic and they can start to talk about their, you know, their fears. And you know, a lot of this is about fear, fear of their beloved parent dying, and I completely understand that. Um I um I am um a motherless daughter. My mother died when I was 14 and my one of my biggest fears has always been my father's death um but and you know for a long time I avoided that conversation with my father. but then I thought, oh how shabby it is that I this you know aging expert is not having to this- <laughs> sort of use my own like self-induced shame to have the conversation. And, you know, I don't want to shame anyone, really. I just want to give people sort of notice that this conversation is the key to successful aging, to healthy aging. I, you know, I don't really like the term successful aging, but to healthy aging, to living a longer and healthier life.
0: So in terms of your own... Practice in terms of the conversation that that you go through with your father, for instance. How do you think that this practice and this habit has impacted your own perception in life and your own perception of what family is? Yeah, um, you know. So my
1: dad is actually remarried now, um, and he has this, you know, wonderful, wonderful um, wife who I adore. Um, and so I,, um, I have had these conversations with with both my father and my stepmother at this point., um, and they know that, um, for example, if ever they will talk about themselves as,, um, as sort of not able to do something, unable to do something because of their age, they know that, I will call them on it, right? That I will say, no, 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 you can do that. What's holding you back is your negative perception of older people and you've internalized that. And so I use that all the time with my father and stepmother, you know, and, and they've internalized it as well. You know, we don't have conversations about ageism anymore in my family be- <laughs> because, you Everyone's like, everyone knows what the deal is. But mm-hmm. I'm always surprised, actually, when, you know, when my children will have friends over and they'll make an ageist comment and my kids are like, oh, you can't say that around my mother. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> no, you can't say that, period. And then I give them, a, I wouldn't say a lecture, but we talk about the negative consequences of ageism and mm-hmm. how it hurts them and hurts their loved ones. And hurts other people, and generally, you know, I feel like um, a lot of um, a lot of young people, um, you know, and by young, I mean, you know, sort of from um, I'm talking about, you know, young adults. A lot of young adults are really sort of um, aware of the negative consequences of things like sexism and racism and homophobia, for example, um, but. Generally, people are not aware of the negative consequences of ageism. And so I use my own research to really give them, you know, sort of examples and bring them into the conversation of about what happens when people internalize that negative stereotyping and and have sort of their own and how their ageism can actually hold them back in the world from growing and from experiencing life and from making new friends and from all sorts of good things.
0: Yeah, I think I think having that conversation for me is something that will be coming in the next couple of years, especially um, knowing that my father will be on his own. And I mean, we haven't even spoken the idea of remarriage yet. That is something that is, um, I think he's very much enjoying his own single life at the moment so (laughs) I think it's really it's a really good (laughs) it's a really different way to so now he's into camping he's into all these different activities that we've never seen while he was uh while he was married so it's very interesting to see the different life that he can lead and the different um scary adventures that he talks about getting himself into now so and the next couple of years, the whole idea of him getting older will sort of come into play in his mind as well. So that will be a conversation that that we will be aiming to have, especially after talking to you. I think it's going to be on my mind constantly now. Um, so we got a few questions from the audience that have been sent over to us. And to avoid some of the overlap in the conversation and some of the repeat and answers, uh, there's just a couple that really struck out to me in terms of what we can talk about. So the first one is, how can families promote a sense and foster a sense of connection between older and younger family members?
1: Mm, That's a great question. So we actually know that um, intergenerational contact is a way to decrease ageism. And so I think families are really like they're the original intergenerational um, uh, activity, right? When you get together with family members, um, when you, you know, make dinner and invite your parents and grandparents, and maybe, you know, if you have young children, there are four generations there. So, you know, telling family stories at those sorts of Gatherings is really important and really sort of can create a cohesion and a bond between generations. Um, going out and doing an activity together is another really wonderful idea. Actually hiking, going out into nature, reading books together, having like a family book club, for example. All of these are amazing ways to bond with another generation. Mm-hmm.
0: I think, especially when it comes to the whole idea of the connection, and I, I really regret not having, um, not learning a lot of the stories that my grandfather had lived through before he passed away. I think if I'd known a little bit more about the stories and his adventures and his life, I think that would have been um, even a deeper look into how our family came to be, um, uh-huh. in terms of the personality and the characteristics that somehow i apparently, according to other family members, I have fostered from him, not even knowing a lot of his stories and a lot of his adventures. So I think that's a really cool, it's a really cool um, personality trait of mine. But how can families sort of have that conversation and have that idea of, because this is similar to the, what the next question is, how can some of the families sort of just go through the conversation of learning a bit more about the stories and learning a bit more about the history? Well, actually it's funny that you ask that because
1: right after we finish, um, I am gonna go into the next room where my husband and his family are getting together to celebrate the 100th anniversary of, their fa- of the birth of their father. He died at age, 67, but he my husband and his three brothers actually created um sort of a, a memorial to talk about their father, to bring stories that they remember to life, um, and to bring photos to life and to share them between the generations. So we're like literally about to do this. Oh wow. Yeah. It's actually a really beautiful, you know, beautiful thing to see. Um, and I would like to do that with my own, my family of origin as well. I think that celebrating, um, and, you know, having remembrances of family members, um, who have died, maybe died early, maybe you didn't get in, you know, get to know is a wonderful way to sort of just bring people together and hear about, you know, maybe your aunt or uncle knows something about your grandfather that, you know, that you didn't know, or maybe one of his friends knows something that they can share or, you know, whomever, maybe you can get like some school records or you can look at old photos. And usually, you know, that will, that will elicit, you know, memories and experiences that people have had with, with loved ones. Mm
0: -hmm. I think that's such a great way of sort of commemorating the life that, um, each generation didn't get to know. Especially in terms of the way that my kids in the future wouldn't get to know my grandpa the way that I got to know him and the patriarchal sort of way that life was done in terms of the situation. So I think that that is such a great way that your husband's family is just sort of commemorating um, the life of of his father. I think that's an amazing way of doing that.
1: Yeah, I do too. I love I love that he's doing this.
0: So in the last minute, we love to have a little open mic session just to sort of end um, end the podcast in a way that is totally up to you so you get to share anything that you're passionate about. So in the last minute, I'd love to give you the floor and just sort of share anything that you would like the audience to know.
1: Ooh, um, <laughs> <laughs> I would love the audience to know that um that growing older is um, a privilege and that older people generally have have more life experience, but growing older people I, I like to say that, Older people are like a, a, like wine, you know, that develops with age, that develops body, that develops flavor. There are there is so much sort of under the skin and under the sort of outward appearance that we need to see um, from older people that we need to really, you know, that we need to acknowledge, that we need to learn about, that we need to um, be able to share because we're all grown older. And we all want to be treated well. We all want to have that respect. We all want people to know who we are and what has been important to us Mm -hmm. in our lives. And so I would say, you know, as I created the Wrinkle Project to change the way we see growing older and to change the way we see and experience, you know, wrinkles and aging, I would say really, you know, find an older person and get to know them. Find, create a new relationship. Find someone who's not in your generation and get to know them and create a friendship because those are the friendships that are beneficial both for you and for them and can really be, you know, uh, be the source of some beautiful memories.
0: I I love that concept of just sort of getting to know and having that talk. I think a lot of communities community centers that I go to, um, have sessions of discussion groups and have that one-on-one conversation. I've attended a couple of them where they just talk about, um, they just sort of share, I think they had a theme a few weeks ago of share the war stories and share like going to war and what that sort of looks like. And I, I was hearing so many different stories about the way that they lived. And and I think, On the women's side as well where the women stayed home that ideology of what was expected of them it was so nice to have that conversation and i agree i love attending those little conversations of just seeing the difference between the expectations that came about at the different age groups and different ages that was just so it's not talked about as much so i love hearing conversations like that so i definitely do recommend like seeing community centers and things like that, that do have that availability. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I,
1: I always say the older the older a person is, the more life experience they have, and the more interesting they are. But we just, you know, we often separate ourselves from older people. So this is good reason to, you know, to sort of join in one of those activities.
0: Yes. No, I, I love that. And I love ending it on such a high note of, Of sort of learning a little bit more about the personality of the aging population that we have and especially when they have so much history to share. Um, So thank you so much, Stacey, for joining me on the show today and for talking a lot about the different ways that ageism comes about and the different definitions that can be spoken upon. So thank you so much. If there's a way that audience members would like to get into touch with you to talk a little bit more about the aging process and aging families. Is there a way that they are able to? Sure. Um, they can email me
1: at, um, um, I'm going to give them this email, (laughs) elderopt, E-L-D-E-R-O-P as in Peter, T as in Tom at gmail.com. So elderopt at gmail.com.
0: Okay, perfect. I will have that uh, in, down in the description below if audience members would like to use that email address. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so thank you so much again for joining me. And I wanna thank everyone for joining on the show today and and hearing the discussion and sending in questions. I think it's amazing that we get to talk about this. Every time we come on, I love talking about this. So yes, thank you so much. And I will see you guys in the next episode.
1: Thank you so much, Dina.
0: You've been listening to Altogether, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent and thanks for tuning in.